Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs especially. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to study these things. Lord, I pray in this time that you help our men especially learn what is required of them and learn how they are to live this life in a way that honors you. Pray for a movement of the Spirit. I pray that He would impart these things to our souls, that He would move in our midst in a special way. I pray also for our ladies as they will be learning uh, what their husbands are to be. I pray for our children as they will be learning uh, how they need to honor their godly heritage and how they are to do that. I praise you. And I thank you for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Uh, Thus far in our series through the book of Proverbs, we have been laying the foundations of a wise life with a focus on we men being the men that God has designed us to be and with a focus on our women also being the women that God has designed them to be. And so far, by way of very brief review, we have covered the necessity of the abundance of counselors as the essential means of enabling repentance, as well as the necessity of observational sociological learning. As modeled by Solomon, we also spoke to the primary reason for honoring God-given sex roles, according to Proverbs, being the accurate reflection of God's image by we, His image bearers. Then we established that the proverbial person needs to be humble. This is the gateway, we said, to all categories and kinds of wisdom will not learn that which you do not believe you need to learn. We established also that the proverbial person is wise in the wisdom of God, and God's wisdom is righteousness. Good is wise, wise is good. And we acknowledge further that the proverbial man is a companion of the wise. If you lie with dogs, you get fleas. If, on the other hand, you associate with the wise and the righteous, you will imbibe those qualities. And finally, we learn that the proverbial person is confident in the Lord because he knows or she knows who they are as a child of God. In Christ is their primary definition, not as a father, as a mother, as a worker, or any other identifier. They are first and foremost a child of the Most High. And upon these seven points, everything else rests. Solomon's wisdom manifest in action presupposes all of these truths. And because God is who he is, and we have been made his children, we are to behave consistent with his word. 
And by the way, this is the line that all the epistles follow. The apostles tell us who we are, and then they command us to behave consistent with who we are, and then they show us how to behave in a manner that's consistent with who we've been made in the form of all of the moral imperatives. Do this, don't do that. And all those, of course, are drawn from God's law and applications of the Ten Commandments. But from identity comes behavior. And because we have established Christian identity, we now have the basis for Solomon's moral imperatives. And today I have three of these for you. These are the first three. This is the first installment of the proverbial man, focusing on what we as men are to be specifically. And there will be at least one more sermon directed at men, I think maybe two. We'll see. But I do want you to understand that this is not exclusive to men. The truths uh, that I'm going to be giving you are not exclusive to men. Our ladies can surely benefit from this as well. A lot of these things are, are universal. They would be more geared toward one sex than another. But also, our ladies are all going to raise men, or most of us will. And so from that angle, this has great benefit. And by the way, the reverse will also be true. So when I speak specifically to the ladies, which I will do, it'll have great value to the men. You'll know what your wife is supposed to be. You'll know what to help her become. And if you've not yet found a wife, you'll know what you ought to be looking for. But in these studies, we're going to be working from high to low, so from larger concepts to more narrow actions. All of what does remain, however, narrow or broad, though, speaks to behavior, although some of this is more heavily weighted toward disposition and attitude and a little less toward individual action, and that's sort of the high view, and that's largely going to be the case with what we're studying today, and this is evident in point number one, which is that the proverbial man is selfless. The proverbial man is selfless. Now, the entire book of Proverbs is a father teaching his son to be diligent in the service of God and of others. There is the path of self-service on one side, and then conversely, there is the path of slavery to base impulses, which leads to the destruction of the man and those around him. And this looks like pursuing the adulterous woman of chapter 8 with its terrible outcome. It looks like slothfulness, which I can't even give you a reference for because uh, not being lazy is something that is pervasively taught throughout the book. And this is juxtaposed against building a life that matters by denying base instincts and pursuing righteousness in religion as an individual, in family, and in relationships of all kinds. But this selflessness is perhaps especially promoted in the latter portion of Proverbs 11. Now, for my purposes in this time, I'm going to go back to this uh, shortly. But in this first go-around of the verses that I'm going to read to you, I am going to deliberately omit all the negative warnings, and I'm going to give you only the uh, positive aspects of this. So Proverbs 11, starting in verse 17. The merciful man does himself good. Now, mercy means action, and a man is not merciful towards himself, obviously, in this context. He is working to give mercy to others. Mercy is what? It's not receiving the due consequences of their actions. So he's a kind-hearted man, and he is working consistent with his nature. Verse 18, he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. He is doing the work of sowing. The idea is that of a farmer, he sows seeds that he may at a later point reap 
a harvest. Verse 19, he who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life. Another word might be diligent. He is consistent in his work, not sporadic. And that work is the pursuit of righteousness. Verse 20, the blameless in their walk are his delight. If you understand that reference, you understand it to mean he is consistently this way. He is walking in this. Verse 24, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. Again, he is doing the work of sowing seed. That's the idea. That's what he's scattering, that he may reap a harvest. Verse 25, the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Again, we have talked about the law of reaping and sowing. He is good to others. He has worked hard in his profession. He has an abundance, and because he is gracious and kind, he gives of that abundance to others. He is marked by generosity, and he is able to be generous again because he has worked. Verse 26, blessing will be on the head of him who sells it, meaning grain. Why does he have the grain? Because he sowed the seed, and he grew the produce, and then he reaped it, and now he has stored it. He has done all of that work, and now he is able to profit from the proceeds and his family as well. Verse 27, he who diligently seeks good seeks favor, favor from others. So we have here relationships. He is not just working hard in the fields. He is working hard in interpersonal relationships and developing those toward godly ends. And verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. And the concept of soul winning rubs the Calvinist the wrong way often. I don't know what to tell you if that's your situation, because it's thoroughly biblical language. Paul uses the same language. Of course, we understand that God is sovereign, and he alone is the one who saves or ultimately wins the souls in that sense. But we are indeed soul winners if we are out there sowing the seeds of the gospel because how will they hear without a preacher? That is the means that God uses to convert, so I don't have a problem with that. And if I did, it wouldn't matter anyways, because, again, it's in the sacred text. And then Solomon's conclusion to this chapter is in verse 31, the righteous will be rewarded in the earth. And in context, they will be rewarded for their righteous work. So I want all the men in the congregation to listen to my next statement. But I want young men to listen to this in particular. Ready? Your life is to be spent working. Your life is to be spent working. If you reflect upon your life and you think to yourself, I am seldom tired and never exhausted, you're doing this wrong. And as I speak of work here, I want you to understand that I'm talking about far more than vocational or professional work. That specifically needs to be addressed. Solomon does address it at length and often. And so we will be addressing it at a future point. But here I speak of work in all categories. The spiritual work that a man needs to do with respect to himself. Taking inventory of his own spiritual condition. And praying that the Holy Spirit, as the psalmist does, would give him illumination to this effect. Time in the Word. Time in prayer. Time in discipleship with others. I'm talking about spiritual and relational work in his family, taking inventory of his children's spiritual condition, of his wife's spiritual condition. How, pray tell, can a man 
wash his wife with the water of the word in a way that leads to her sanctification if he does not know where she is at spiritually, if he has not put in the effort to have his finger on her pulse, spiritually speaking. This is also spiritual and relational work in his church. Same deal. Does he know what's going on in the lives of others that are in his own congregation that he may minister to them accordingly? Same is true in his community. Is he active for righteousness' sake? Is he giving the gospel? Is he engaged in physical and philanthropic work within and without his family? Again, is he able to water others because he has been diligent in his work? He is able to give of the increase because he has increased because he has worked hard and he does not hoard that increase because he is a generous, godly man. Go to the ant whose work is constant and observe all her ways, says Solomon in chapter 6. Work, 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 work. Now be careful here, men, because there are many men who define themselves by work. And we don't define ourselves by work. We define ourselves by Christ. But who or uh, what we work for absolutely does define our lives. We are evident in the work that we do. The kind of work that you do and the consistency and the outcome tell the story of you. You are absolutely going to know a man by his work and his attitude toward work. And again, work in all facets of life, not just the professional kind. On past generations and to lesser degree in our present generations, men often thought of themselves either primarily or exclusively as paychecks. They would bring home the bacon. They would, in many cases, hand that over to their wives. And that was the end effectively, of their contribution to the family. It's a big part of how we have gotten here as a society. The boomers did this to great extent. And so all that spiritual and relational stuff that was happening in the household, who did that get put on? Who, ladies, did that get put on? You. And if mom alone knows what's in the hearts of her children... Dad doesn't. She becomes the de facto spiritual leader of the home, does she not? Indeed. There are a great many men who have no clue what's going on in the hearts and in the souls of their children because even when they are present, they are not actually present. They, in practical terms, live by the motto, paycheck and check out. Now, of course, there is room for and a need for rest. And of course, this is a good given by God. But even in this, a man should generally be looking for ways to include his wife and his children, not always. It's okay for you to have some alone time, but often. Consider that God's people, for example, were given a Sabbath, day of rest, and a day to focus their hearts upon the Lord. But were men to go and do that in the temple, tabernacle, local synagogue alone? No, they were to take all of their children in tow. And they were to help those little children work through the religious rites and rituals that God had commanded them to. Do you know how much work that takes in a day and age where you don't have disposable diapers? Where you don't have microwaves to make them their bottles as you're running out the door? where you don't limit the good gift of children in the way that we do, and so you've got six, seven, eight, nine children commonly 
in families, it takes a tremendous amount of work. And that was the Sabbath. Because a man's life is to be devoted to his family, to their development, to their growth. He has to understand marriage and family that way. When I was 19, I was engaged to be married. And it wasn't one of those five-year engagements. I was months away from being married. And I remember telling Lydia as I was thinking through my forthcoming marriage and the way that I would spend my time, I remember telling her, I think maybe three evenings a week is appropriate to have a night with my guy friends. And uh, she communicated that, not in a bad way, to a family member who responded appropriately and said essentially that that was ludicrous. Unfortunately for her and me, about 10 seconds after I got married, that stupid idea died a horrible death because my life was supposed to be building into my wife. And I recognized that eventually. Now let me ask you a question, young man. What do you want? Do you want a wife? Well, if you don't have one now, then that means working now so that you can be prepared to care for her when the Lord gives her to you in all ways. Not merely materially, but spiritually as well. And so if you've got issues, brother, in your life that need to be dealt with between you and the Lord, you better hit the learning curve and hit it quick. You want a better marriage if you already are married. That means selflessly working to love your wife better. Her well-being needs to be your constant endeavor. Do you want to be a better father? Work! That is what it will require. Getting into the lives of your children. How about being a better provider? Same deal. And a better Christian, a better church member. Everything that's worth having is gained through work. Nothing that's worth having is gained through apathy and laziness. But I do not say that nothing is gained from apathy and laziness. Indeed, much is. And this brings us back to Proverbs 11 and to the portions that were previously omitted. Verse 19, again, this is, again, this is balanced to all of that positivity. He who pursues evil will bring about his own death. Verse 20, the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. Verse 21, assuredly the evil man will not go unpunished. Verse 24, and there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. Verse 26, he who withholds grain, the people will curse. Verse 27, he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. Verse 29, he who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. Verse 31, again, and here is the full statement, if the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. Everything, according to Solomon, good, is acquired by hard work. And everything bad is the consequence of either pursuing evil or pursuing nothing. But then I repeat myself because as Solomon has it, pursuing nothing is pursuing evil. And yet for all its rewards, all the suffering that comes from laziness also, we still often have a very negative attitude toward work. Why is that? Well, I think that a big part of the answer is that the attitudes that characterize us are determined largely by our expectations. And our expectations are often not determined by the Word of God, but rather by a godless society. 
Why does one man attend to his work with joy and contentment while another man attends to the same work bitterly? Very often because the first man's expectation is that he should work, that work is good for him, that work enables him to do good to others while the second man has no sense of himself going back to identity. Reflecting the image of God as a man means being a provider in all senses. God worked six days and he rested on the seventh to leave us an example. And so because he has no sense of this identity, he wants others to work for him. He makes himself a leech. Godly men do not have this attitude. Before sin, Adam was created. And before sin, God gave him work to do. It's not a consequence of a fallen world. It was always intended to be this way. And a lack of work for a man produces tremendous self-loathing. If you don't fulfill this, it will produce only negative things in your soul. And very often that self-loathing is directed elsewhere, not at himself, not internally. It doesn't produce introspection. He just lashes out. And I believe that this is most of what we saw in 2020 in cities burning down. It wasn't gangfully employed, self-possessed young men who burnt the country to ashes, was it? No, it was men who were set adrift, who had surrendered their masculinity to a government check and sought to compensate for what they forsook through juvenile and evil expressions of male identity. They ran around like little toddler boys out of control, breaking stuff because they hadn't yet learned to direct their strength toward virtue. Now, is a man to be strong and is a man to show strength and is a man even at times to use that strength to destroy? Yes, there is much in this civilization and in this godless society that needs to be broken. But a man's strength is given to him by God to enable him to serve others. And a man's leadership is always to be understood as service to others and not service to himself, whether he is building or breaking. Thus, your strength and leadership role, brother, is not an end. They are means to the greater end of service. Now, let me step aside for a moment and give a word to the ladies specifically. All right, so ladies, lend me your ears. Hopefully, you've been listening. But listen in a special way, I ask you in this time. And I'm going to speak here first to the young ladies. Find a man with a servant's heart if you do not yet have a husband. And you can uh, deduce this in numerous ways, but often it's the simple things that will reveal much. Watch him in a group dynamic. If something needs to be done, does he have to be asked? Does he volunteer himself? If he's not serving others, if that's not built into his heart and into his character, he's not going to serve you and your children the way that he ought. Find a man who serves and a man whom you can serve. And in your mutual service, the gospel will be revealed. Now a word to the older ladies. As we continue to go through this series, and with respect to the things that I'm teaching you now, if you have a husband and you know that in serious ways, the man you're married to is not what he is supposed to be, you cannot simply let that persist. Okay, Ephesians 5 
says that a wife is to submit herself to her husband. Prior to that statement, there is, taught by Paul, mutual submission. Your marriage relationship will not be eternal. You as a sister in Christ, to him as your brother in Christ, will be. You cannot let him put your family in a situation to where all of you will inherit the wind. Okay? You cannot let your children be the collateral damage for his selfishness rather than selflessness. So you need to call him to repentance. And sister, if he does not repent, and again, we're not talking about nitpicking. My wife could do that. And Proverbs will teach us not to do that before we're through. We're talking about grave and serious uh, derelictions of responsibility. If you have that situation, bring it to the church, sister, and we'll help you. Okay, we're built for that. But this cannot persist. And we have talked about generational sin. That's going to create it. If you live long enough, you'll watch your children become heartbreaking extensions of your husband's sin. Okay? So now back to my brothers. I want you to understand, men, that male headship is a thing both granted and earned. And it is granted in the sense that God has made man to be the leader of his home, period. It's a matter of design. And yet, if it is good headship, it is also earned by a history of selflessness. If a woman can look back upon her marital life and see that although she did not agree, inevitably, with every decision that her husband made, that he did make all of those decisions, seeking the good of his own family instead of the good of his own, life and situation, then trust for the future is made much easier, isn't it? Of course it is. And isn't this true of our submission to Christ as the husband of we, his church? How many of the Psalms are devoted to looking in the rearview mirror and seeing the way that God has been faithful to this patriarch and that matriarch and the nation in general, and therefore this becomes the basis of trust in the future? Is this not what we're learning in the book of Acts? That God has always showed up for his people, so he will continue to do so in the future. She needs to be able to see that in you. Ladies, your husband is going to be wrong often. Okay, so I'm not talking about perfection in leadership. You would be wrong about many things too. This is the nature of leadership and being a fallen person. What I'm saying is he needs to have your best interests at heart. And if she can see that in you, brother, then she will trust you. And if she can't see it in you, I'm not justifying her sin and her lack of submission, but you live in a real world, my friend. If you keep leading her into brick walls because of your selfishness, you're not going to be able to expect realistically a whole lot from that situation. I'm sorry. That's just life. And by the way, your wife's submission is not to be your first focus. Not at all. Your service of her is to be your first focus and of your children and of your church and of your community. Again, you're to be focused on work, 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 work. You cannot tell those that you have charge over that they are after Christ your greatest priority if you work and then get home from work and watch TV for six hours a night. 
or you spend absurd amounts of time on social media or on your phone or on video games. And there are a lot of men in this day that do these things. What a sad waste of your life. Now, can those things have their place? Yeah, they can. They can. For many men, they don't. And so it's probably a pluck your eye out, cut your hand off kind of an issue and just stop doing it because you can't keep it under control. But if you can, they can have a place in your life, but they certainly are not to hold a place of priority. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our example, brothers. Yet never to lead out of pride. Ever. That pride is always to be submitted to the Lord. And I've used this example once before. But Lydia used to drive around with me every now and again as I did work errands and I had this particularly belligerent fellow who had a lot of money he was a very very functional drunk though and he was drunk all the time and um, she was with me in the van and he berated me and she saw it and she didn't handle it well she started crying and she said to me how can you be so stoic and so calm in light of the way that he's speaking to you. And I said to her, I said, I can tell you what's going to happen if I lash out at this guy. He's going to sue me into oblivion, and then who suffers as a result of that? You do, and my children do. And so I can suffer it, and I can set aside my pride. We are leaders, but we are servants first. And it must be this way, or else we're going to lead for the worst. And some of you are demonstrably selfish in your marriages, and you need to hear this. And going back to the whole discipleship theme, you need to hear it from men who are not me. You need to hear about specific instances in which you have been selfish, and you need to be shown how to remedy that situation in particular. So go to work, men, helping other men for whom this is true. Point number two, the proverbial man gives wisdom. Proverbial man gives wisdom. Discipleship is a messy proposition. If you've been engaged in it for a while, and I hope that you have, you know this, and you also then know that one of the messiest aspects of discipleship is the verbalization of biblical wisdom to another person, telling them what the Bible teaches, 
admonishing and rebuking when necessary, in addition to encouraging. Now, when this works, because it always works because it honors God, but when it works, air quotes, you know, when it has the effect that you want, it works wonders. Okay, they, they grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Uh, marriages are radically changed. Home lives radically changed. I mean, this person starts to confess a kind of wisdom that sounds like it should be coming out of a Christian's mouth who's been a, a believer for multiple decades. And here you have this infant in Christ because they are able to grow that fast. It's remarkable. And it's happening in this church. And we have seen it. And we are seeing it all the time. But when it does not work, well, Proverbs 1, 7, fools despise wisdom and instruction. And as Solomon makes clear in numerous other places, fools also despise the one who gave them that wisdom and instruction. Correct a fool, and he will hate you. And so very often, in order to avoid this messy scene, those who are wise, cowardly, withhold the wisdom that the Lord has given them. They ask, am I my brother's keeper, rhetorically, with the implied answer of no, I am not. The correct answer to that, though, brother, is yes, you are. Last time we acknowledged that according to Proverbs 16.31, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Now the point of that verse is that a man who's walked with the Lord for many years has become very wise through experience informed by God's wisdom. Not experience apart from God's wisdom, but rather his experience has deepened his understanding of how to apply the word. But when it comes to godly intervention on behalf of another Often the older saints in a congregation have experience that serves to contradict God's word. Once or on multiple occasions, they went to somebody who was struggling with the desire to help this person, and they were reviled for speaking wisdom to them, and thus they learned not to speak wisdom at all. They learned to mind their own business, even though Scripture teaches us everywhere that our neighbor's good is our business. That his idea is, I want no muss, Therefore, I will give no fuss. Well, thank God for all our sakes that Solomon didn't subscribe to this philosophy. Solomon wasn't just wise in isolation. He spoke that wisdom to his son and ultimately to all God's people of all time. Listen to him give wisdom liberally. I could read from anywhere, but I'll give you a couple examples. Proverbs 4, 1 through 6. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding, for I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Proverbs five twenty through 23 for why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his past. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and, the, and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. So that's Solomon in action, giving wisdom. But now listen to his explicit statements on sharing wisdom. Proverbs twelve eight: a man will... Be praised according to his insight. Of course, a man would be praised for his insight. It is want of insightfulness that causes people to suffer. They need that wisdom. And so when he gives it, 
people rightly praise him. Wisdom is what lifts people out of their suffering. Proverbs 25, 11 through 13, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. He speaks, does not withhold. And listen especially to this, Proverbs fifteen seven: The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but the hearts of fools are not so. So the lips of the wise spread knowledge. In fact, being wise then means more than just possessing knowledge. It necessarily requires expressing it. So having the wisdom that those around you need in order to thrive, and yet withholding that, actually makes you a fool. And in the context of the local church, brother, you're taking the legs right out of the institution that's here to help you and your family. Do you understand that? If you see somebody else flounder and you say nothing, there's a reciprocity here. And it's beautiful, and the Lord has made this. You will give wisdom today to somebody, and that will change the course of their life. And then five years from now, that person will give wisdom to one of your children or your wife or ladies, your husband, and that will change the course of their life. Wisdom being given and then growing through the generations, that doesn't happen if you don't give it in the first place. You harm the very body that is here to help you. Listen, brother or also sister Christian who does not want to get your hands dirty. Understand that the withholding of wisdom is not an option. You are commanded to give wisdom to others. And why are you commanded to give wisdom to others? Because the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2, 6. It is not proprietary to you. You don't get to make decisions about whether it is expressed or not. Wisdom comes from God. It's to be used according to his command. The Lord doesn't allow you to bury your talents in the ground. Rather, he demands an increase. So woe to the one who has been blessed with the Lord's wisdom who does not give it generously. But on the other hand, and this is a word of balance here, woe to the one who seeks to give what they do not yet have. Every Christian has wisdom to give. And every Christian has wisdom that they are required of the Lord to give. I often say that 10 seconds after your conversion, you already know the greatest wisdom of all, and that is how to know God, and you are already culpable to give that wisdom to others. Indeed, it's immediate upon conversion. The Great Commission becomes binding upon you. But as a new convert, wise in all respects, of course they are not. That's why Paul refers to them in Ephesians 4.14 as children. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's not talking about unbelievers. That's talking about believers. And that's why they so desperately need the local church. They are erratic by nature. Uh, they're up, they're down. They, they get their ears tickled by this thing, and then they hear that thing, and they don't know what to believe. And so more mature believers help anchor them in the deep things of Christ so that they grow in discernment and stop being chaotic like that. But somebody in that state shouldn't be giving comprehensive Christian counseling to other Christians. 
Dan's series is excellent. Last week, after um, he was done teaching, I brought up the example of the woman at the well. She had great wisdom. You know what her wisdom consisted of? I've met the Messiah. I know him. You should come meet the Messiah too. Amen. Hallelujah. And she becomes one of the greatest evangelists in the New Testament. You know what she didn't do, though, to the rest of the Samaritans? She did not attempt to teach them a comprehensive overview of a biblical sexual ethic. I think if she had, it probably would have gone awry. She didn't have it. She wasn't going to be able to give it. To engage in discipling and teach a new or old Christian all that Christ has commanded them per the Great Commission is, as previously noted, messy by nature. But to speak presumptuously about matters you do not yet understand is to create a mess in someone else's life through the dissemination of your folly. And Solomon says much about this. Here are just a couple examples. Proverbs seventeen twenty-eight: Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Eighteen two: A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Again, all of us have the wisdom of the gospel. And because of this, we are responsible to the Lord to share it. But not all of us have the requisite wisdom needed to apply that gospel to interpersonal relationships and Christian practice of various different kinds. Those for whom this is true need to defer to those who are more mature. And whether or not a person will defer in this way is often determined by whether they really believe that others need to hear what they have to say for their benefit or if instead they just need to be heard by others. The Proverbs 18.2, fool who delights only in revealing his own mind, needs to be heard by others, even if to their detriment, and indeed it will be. And the reason why he or she needs to be heard goes back to identity from the last study. They so desperately want to be identified as wise and sage that they will attempt to force what is not there. And absolutely nobody is helped by this. The person who gives this foolish counsel is understand is understood to be a fool by anybody with any sense who's privy to what he's saying or she is saying. Well, anybody without sense is harmed by putting their foolish counsel into practice in their own lives and actually applying the things that they're hearing, which are contrary to wisdom and the Word of God. And they themselves continue to suffer because ears cannot receive wisdom when they are connected to a mouth that will not stop confessing foolishness. So the words of Solomon ring true again, Proverbs 11:2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Some of us are not where we need to be yet to be giving comprehensive Christian counseling. And for the sake of the body, if you're in that situation, you need to have the humility to recognize this. The new convert, or perhaps the not-as-new convert, who for some reason or another is still relatively immature, is to think of themselves, I think, more as a reservoir. A reservoir builds and it holds and it gains. Brother, sister, Christian, that, that's where you're at if you're in this circumstance. You are acquiring wisdom and learning more and more how to apply it in your own life. But the more mature believer, I think, is to liken themselves more to a stream. The Lord has given us what he has given us over the course of decades, and so we are to be much more active in giving it to others. We have it, therefore we can give it. This comes in time. Let it come. You have time. 
Okay, if you don't have what you need, brother or sister Christian, you have those who are in fellowship with you who do have it. The Lord grows these things in us through experience in the Christian life very often. It is remarkable to me that I have been married now almost as long as I was unmarried. I've been married almost 20 years. I've been a father almost 16 years. And I had a couple businesses. A lot has happened to me in my life, and the Lord has allowed me to learn through those experiences how to better apply God's Word. And that said, that brother's been married almost 40 years. He's been a father, I think, 35. These saints have been married twice each, which comes with its own wisdom. They have children who they've helped guide through those circumstances, which comes with its own wisdom. And I'm not saying that we should despise people's youth or, you know, relatively young age in terms of the Christian life. But I am saying leave time for wisdom to grow. And if it has not grown in a given area, don't try to give it. And by the way, you're you're never going to get past this ultimately. I have many circumstances that I'm confronted with as a pastor that are frankly above my pay grade. You know what I do? I go to other pastors who've been in the ministry a lot longer than me. There is always a need for a council of elders. Some of you are strong in certain areas and you have much wisdom to give there and then you're weak in others. And so you give what you have. You don't try to speak presumptuously about something you don't understand. Point number three, the proverbial man honors his heritage. The proverbial man honors his heritage. And on this point, I want the little ears in the congregation to listen especially well, and teenagers included. And if you don't understand all of what I'm saying, at least try to get the big picture, okay? Because this pertains especially to you. You live in a society that is, in a sense, hyper-individualistic. Everybody's all about themselves and their own identity and their own reality. And as such, they've also severed themselves from their past and certainly from their paternity, from their mothers and their fathers and the way that they were raised and certainly their grandparents. They don't want anything that was old. They don't want to be connected to anyone that is old. Christians, in contrast, are to see themselves as building generational godliness. And we are to see ourselves as building blocks, resting upon the faithfulness of the saints that came before us, and certainly all the more if we come from believing parents. Solomon promotes this sense of godly heritage often in both positive and negative terms. Chapter 10, verse 1, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. 17, 6, Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their father's. 23, 25, let your father and your mother be glad and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. 30, 11 through 12, there is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. Now here in this church, we rightly stress above all else pleasing Christ. But we do not do so to the exclusion of honoring your earthly heritage. If you've had at least one believing parent, you indeed do have an obligation to them for the rest of your life. And the obligation, so that we are very clear, is not to obey them in perpetuity in the same way that you did when you were 10. This is a massive problem in Christian churches 
parents not allowing their now married children to leave their father and mother and cleave to their spouse, not allowing male headship, and this will be addressed at length before we are through this series. But this point still remains. You have a very real obligation if you have a godly parent or godly parents, and that is to live out the godly principles that they instilled in you. Whatever they taught you that's misapplied in terms of application of Scripture, that's not to be repeated. But if they were believers, they taught you much that was genuinely godly, and you absolutely owe them for that. A good father and mother gives everything to their children. There are multiplied sacrifices in the parent-child relationship that well exceed those of any other relationship, as any parent can tell you. And so as a result of this, lifelong honor is due. Your parents. Listen again, children, Proverbs twenty-three, twenty-five. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Do not become the Proverbs thirty eleven through twelve kind of man or woman who curses his father and does not bless his mother. And this is for Christ's sake first, but very much also for the sake of your parents. Now, obviously, no human child has ever received a perfectly godly heritage from their parents. Mine certainly have not. But recognize that which was godly to have been an investment in you that is supposed to grow into holiness and godliness that you are then to instill in your children and they to theirs and they to theirs and so on and so forth for as long as the Lord should tarry. You know, it used to be that the money for a young adult's higher education in a given trade was supplied by their parents with the understanding that for the duration of the parent's life, the child would contribute to their material well-being. I thought of this because I was thinking of a Christmas story, and this is Scrooge's story, as I will soon be watching that movie. But that used to be the way of it, to send him away to trade school, to pay for the whole thing. And then they had a financial obligation for the duration of their lives. Now, Christians don't have something like this necessarily. We do have obligations to our aging parents, but we don't have a hard rule like that. But we do have a similar rule in terms of spiritual investment. If your parents have instilled in you godliness, albeit imperfectly, then you are obligated before the Lord to live out that godliness. This satanic society throws out its fathers and mothers, and certainly its grandfathers and grandmothers. There was a scene at a funeral that went viral recently. You may have seen it. It was a young lady tearing to shreds her own father, not because he was abusive, but because he held two traditional views of things like marriage and family. Ripped him at his funeral. That's a commentary on the society writ large. It's Maoism. It's communism. It gets children to turn against their parents. It is satanic. We are not to be this way. We are to honor the contributions of those who raised us to be holy by being holy. We remember first the name of our God and endeavor to represent that great name well, but a distant, distant, distant second is the name of our Christian parents. I used to explain this to my children all the time. Whenever they would get caught in something, I would say, you represent me. 
that name will cost you something. It is known by those who observe your behavior that you are my child. And that's why I named my son what I named my son. Austin, because that's the name of my great-grandfather. Thomas, because that is the name of my grandfather. And Hetzler is my last name. He bears that. He is to bear that well. And when he does not bear that well, I am to reprove him so that he does. And honoring godly heritage is a big part of the motivation to live wisely. You are connected to those who came before you. And if you have no godly paternity in the biological sense and spiritual sense, you certainly have it in the spiritual sense only. In this church, you have spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. And so it is true of all of us. And ultimately, we honor the father of us all when we do this. And that is God who has adopted us into his family through Christ. And if you don't know him, then you've forsaken the greatest wisdom of all. And we as a body would call you to repent and come to Jesus even today, who is, as I have already said, the only perfect proverbial man. And through his perfection, you may be made perfect, and then you will be included in this family. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift that it is to us. Lord, we pray for our children, both spiritual and biological and spiritual. We pray that they be wise. We have the same desire that Solomon so manifestly had for his son, that they grow in wisdom. The problem for them, Lord, is that they have sinners as parents. And so we do pray that you would grant us deeper and deeper repentance, that we would turn from our sin more and more so that they would learn from us as much from a godly example as possible. We do pray, Lord, that they forget our sin and that they not learn from that. And we praise you and we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.